0: The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today.
1: If it's been a couple episodes that we haven't had Holly and friends, it's because Holly's friends are probably on vacation. So we're back with another (laughs) Why Me Project episode, or as we like to call it, Holly and friends.
0: It's kind of true, isn't it?
1: It really is. It's it's really grown to that. People are sending us messages now, Holly, mm-hmm. um, on all of our socials saying, Hey, it was really good to hear Holly and Friends this week. I think we're going to start making Why Me Project and then slash that out and yeah. call it Holly and Friends.
0: Yeah. Uh, and this is special because I spent probably the first year mispronouncing today's guest name. Okay. And so publicly apologize. It's not Sathia. <laughs> Sathia is your name, O.
2: Yes, nailed it. <laughs> nice.
0: Oh, man. You get that a lot?
2: All the time. Yeah. yeah. Like, Sa- Sathia is like on the one of the nicer mispronunciations. I mean, it's gone as bad as like Samantha. And... Samantha? <laughs> oh, S- yeah. But there's no M. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I, there's no explanation for that one, but it was it was bad.
1: We like to ask a skill testing question because we never know where it's going to go. Who are you and where did you come from?
2: Who am I? Where did I come from? Okay, so uh, what I do these days, I'm a porn addiction recovery coach, um, and I've kind of taken an entrepreneurial approach to it. So I have a team of people and we are trying to slay the porn giant together because it's a gate it's a, just a huge problem. Um in in Christian circles but beyond that. Where am I from? Uh complicated question. I mean, I'm I, it's a huge part of my story actually, which I know we're going to get into, but I'm a fourth generation pastor. Mm. So, I come from a lineage of uh, faith leaders, actually before there was Christianity on my dad and my mom's side, there was, uh, lots of Hindu leadership and there was a conversion. And then my, my family became Christian and they're all basically pastors. Um, uh, but believe it or not, I was actually born and raised in Gina, Saskatchewan and, um, lived there till I was 12 and then now I'm, I'm based out of Toronto, but, uh, that's a little bit about me.
1: One of those things that we ask a lot when it comes to a, a pastor's kid is, is, is there pressure being a pastor's kid or or did you ever feel like you needed to become a
2: pastor because you're, as you said, fourth generation of pastors? Yeah, I mean, yes to the first question, probably no to the second. Like whether whether you're aware of it or not, there's always pressure as a pastor's kid. It's just it's integrated. It comes with the territory. Um, I was really grateful because typically what happens for people with my ethnic background is you deal with pastoral kind of pressure, like be the perfect kid. And then you deal with a lot of cultural pressure, mm-hmm. which like in Indian cultures, it's a lot of like high performing academically, doctor, lawyer, engineer kind of career paths. And that sort of thing. My parents were really light on that side of it. And to be fair, they were actually pretty relaxed at home as well. So I'm like, I think I grew up in one of the best case scenarios. My parents protected us from a lot of the drama at church and all that. Um, but there's still, it's still just in the air. You kind of know things are just expected of you as a pastor's kid, but vocationally, I never felt that pressure. In fact, my goal was to, was to become a doctor. Um, I'm really passionate about mental health. I lost several friends to suicide in high school, actually. Mm. And that's what kind of sparked it. And and in the middle of my degree is where I found Jesus, gave my life to him properly and pretty much immediately felt a call into ministry. And um, I I, I resisted it with all my heart, soul, mind and strength because I actually had the thing of like, I don't want to be like my dad, don't want to be a pastor. So I kind of ran the other way and God had to kind of lure me back in but um but yeah not not a lot of pressure vocationally and it's something i talk about in the work i do now like i always had parents who believed in me and Mm -hmm. you know even for our clients we're like you don't need to have perfect parents you just need somebody who believes in you but um my parents were always like when i wanted to be a pizza delivery boy when i was five years old they loved it you know they encouraged it (laughs) all the same as when i wanted to be a psychiatrist when i was 20 you know or a pastor when i was 25 so yeah very fortunate that way
0: can we talk about the, the journey from having your parents' faith as like an influence and then actually becoming your own faith?
2: Okay. So basically, I, I wound up being a, a pretty stereotypical Indian kid, like was very high achieving academically. So I had just turned 17 when I started my undergrad, um, because I had skipped a grade and.
0: Sorry, 17 and you're doing an undergrad
2: yeah yeah what have i had if my I'm done degree. with my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah I had, I had my honors degree by the time i was 20. like i had defended a thesis and you know all that kind of stuff it was kind of crazy so basically you know i've i've been a christian for most of my life as far as like doing the christian things definitely had faith in god and then go to university i'm studying biological sciences and you know in those environments it's just assumed you would not be foolish enough to believe in god so hmm. it's the complete opposite. And I, I really was not exposed to a lot of those kinds of environments growing up. Like I was in the church, I went to a Christian school, you know, I kind of had a bit of a bubble. So it was a little bit of a surprise. And here were these really smart people that were like, yeah, God's not real. And the, the basic premise of science is like, you have a hypothesis, then you do experiments. And if you can prove that hypothesis is true, then it stands as truth until proven otherwise. That's kind of the working definition of truth and i was in these classes and i was realizing man these guys have all the evidence all the you know reasoning and arguments and whatever i have a bunch of things that i can tell you i believe and i have almost no proof to back it up like god was such a arm's length kind of experience for me and that is what really got me searching for just something that was real and because i had the foundation i was like god i want to see that you're real in my life but um i was i I mean it could have been anything at that point because i just i i knew there was something else out there but i just needed something tangible because it was it was starting to become really clear that if i didn't experience god or something godly then science was going to become really compelling for me and Mm -hmm. um and god really met me there was a couple things but probably the the highlight of it all was my dad had a growth in his colon that was the size of my fist and so it was a 90% blockage they needed to remove about a third of his intestines to um to for him to just be able to digest food again he he lost tons of weight i mean he was frail really sick and basically he woke up one day and he passed that that growth just passed it in his movement which is um like not supposed to happen Ouch. ever yeah. and the the only term the medical community could come up with was they called it spontaneous amputation which we're like oh yeah okay yeah code for um,
0: miracle but we don't want to say it
2: <laughs> yeah pretty much pretty much the academic term for a miracle if ever there was yeah. one yeah so i had things like that happening where it was like you know god was answering my heart's desire to see that he was real um But even before that, I think what I, one of the things I realized is, you know what? I, I could be confronted with all of the arguments in the world of why God isn't real, why, you know, Christians are stupid and all that kind of stuff. But in my heart of hearts, I realized actually I know that God is real. Like I really do have faith. So it, it started in my heart, but then God really did start to answer that desire to see that he was a bit more real than just the stories I was reading in the Bible.
0: It's interesting because when you grow up in the faith, in the church, you're trained to conform, and yeah. then you're released into the world, and if you conform, that that habit is really detrimental to your faith journey. Was yeah. it difficult switching from kind of that um, idea of, oh, I have to conform to what I'm supposed to be doing to, ooh, now I have to be different?
2: Yeah, it, it was it was really interesting. And like even so, because I went to a Christian school, my friend circle, even at the time, was still like still had a Christian basis to it. And mm-hmm. then I had tons of friends who were also not really believers. And that was that was very interesting because I, I think when I committed my life to Jesus, I knew what came with the territory as far as lifestyle goes. And so people are like, how come you don't drink anymore? Mm. And, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it it didn't scare me at that point, because number one, I had really good friends, um, on both sides of the equation. Um, and like, there was nobody who was like, oh, Sathi is a Christian now. He's so weird. Um, like, I, I was just, I was still myself, but they could just tell, like, I was taking my faith really seriously. Um, and then there was just the second side of it, which was like, Jesus is real and I will pay whatever the consequences are for professing that.
1: You have this this renewed faith, if you will. What's then that next step? Because then obviously you being a doctor wasn't going to happen. You becoming a pastor, do you go to pastoral school or, you know, how do you follow that career path?
2: Yeah. So in what would have been my first year in med school, I, I was at home living with my parents. I just, you know, got my undergrad, 20 years old. I knew that God was calling me to ministry, like writing was on the wall. It was so clear and just had no idea what my next step was. So I actually took two years and I traveled a little bit. I worked a little bit, but I actually would like, I mean, this is like I this is one of those stories where you're like, oh, yeah, you were a pastor's kid. (laughs) I, I spent so much time like reading my Bible and worshiping and praying and like was just like so excited to learn about God. Um, one of the most formative seasons of my life and just going to conferences and, you know, watching stuff online and just trying to like learn and grow. And out of that, I was like, okay, I want to go to ministry school. So I did wind up going to ministry school eventually, um, and then pastored for a couple years. And um, yeah, and then it's really only recently that I've actually stepped out of more local church ministry. I was doing that for about 10 years. So
0: At some point, um, stuff crept into your life that maybe wasn't as honoring to God. Can you share about your journey dealing and struggling with porn?
2: Okay, so we've set this up really nicely because all the important parts of my story are on the table. So (laughs) um, I don't have to give any context, which is great. So in the computer lab of my Christian school, I was 11 years old. I was in grade six, uh, grade seven, actually, I think. And uh, my buddy came up to me. He said, hey, um, check out this website. Innocent sounding website. I won't say what it was because unfortunately it's still a porn site to this day, but you would have never guessed. You would never guess in a million years it was uh, pornographic. And that was my first exposure. And I was the, the sheltered Christian kid. So I, I was not intrigued. I was not like curious. I was totally disturbed by what I saw. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Um, and it was, I hadn't hit puberty yet either. So there just, there just wasn't that thing in my head. Um, and, you know, this is back in the day when, like, you had the, the computer monitors with, like, the big round power button. So, like, you know, we're in a computer lab, like a public place. And you're just like, uh. like, just trying to poke that thing and, like, get the computer off because, like, you don't want to be associated with what's going on. It was one of those moments. But what happened then is when I started to develop um, and and become a man, then I I had that memory, like the seed was planted. And so I started to watch porn more regularly in high school like I was in a Christian school. But interestingly enough, like most of us were watching it and we all kind of knew it. Mm. And then by the time I was in university, porn became a lot more regular for me. Uh, This is where I would say I really developed a a bad relationship with it because I I pretty much planned my days around it. And porn was my relief for the stress of pursuing an education. And some of the pressure that came with that, and then it was my reward as well because you just you don't get rewarded instantaneously for pursuing an education and getting good grades. so <laughs> for me, that was just my way of kind of I guess rewarding myself and then when I gave my life to Jesus, I was like, okay I like I said, I know what comes with the territory. I'm gonna stop drinking irresponsibly. I'm gonna clean up my language, oh and I'm gonna stop watching porn, and those first two were no problem, and I could not for the life of me stop watching you know it, I could go a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks if things were really going well for me. But I always came back and that that's sort of where it all began, where I realized, oh my gosh, I, I have a problem. You're how old? Thirty
1: two. I mean, I remember you're talking internet. Like I remember being a kid and somebody's like, Oh, so and so has a has a crazy magazine under the you're like, What? What's going on? <laughs> like I yeah. remember that being the first exposure to mm-hmm. something like that. Yes. yes. So I mean, you know,
2: the the internet I'm just try to context of age well yeah. for sure yeah and the funny thing is the the age of exposure hasn't really changed over the years yeah. but the intensity and the volume of it has dramatically because of the internet so like when i got exposed even if i wanted to go watch again like like i said i did eventually reach that curiosity i had to go to the computer that was in the family room of our house at like a quiet time you know what i mean it's just different than today where you get exposed maybe at the same age when you're 11 years old, but you have it on your smartphone. You can go home that night and go back to the same website or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, so yeah, it's it's different times we live in in that regard, for sure.
0: I was just surprised at the age, 11.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I mean- sounds... I
1: think, yeah, that's about, that's accurate. Yeah, I just, I
0: don't know. It just seems like I think of my own children and I think, oh, wow. Like that's just a couple years away. Yeah. Um, Either you must have some kind of encouragement maybe for parents or just <laughs> things to watch out for because yeah. it seems so young and not, like you said, it's so much more accessible. How do you mm-hmm. start having conversations about it to help them view it in, in better context? If they happen to see something, like how do you navigate that with children at, at that age?
2: Yeah. So a slight correction. It's not a matter of if they see something. It's a matter of when. Mm-hmm. Um 20 years ago, it was a question of if they see something. I was in that generation, but it's no longer like that today. They will see it, mm-hmm. whether whether they're trying to or not. So the best thing you can do is you have to think, you have to remember what it was like to be a kid um, learning about sex. Sex is uncomfortable uh, when you're young, even though you're curious about it. Um, it's incredibly personal. And what happens is a lot of parents have these conversations way too late. So mm-hmm. they don't, they don't have any, um, equity in the relationship bank, especially in regards to sexual matters. So when a kid gets exposed at 13, if you haven't had any conversations about sex with him, he's not coming to you. And if he is, it's not going to be a very transparent conversation because he or she doesn't know if it's actually safe to have that talk with you. So th- one of the best things a parent can do is have the conversations a lot earlier and, and often answer their questions, um, age appropriate, obviously. But the more, the more of a safe environment you can give them, the more you can demonstrate we can have a conversation about this and it's not a big deal, the more likely they are to come to you when they actually find stuff that maybe is problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, I mean, one of my, one of my colleagues, he says that he basically told his kids, he was having conversations and then he told his kids, Hey, you have a smartphone now. There's responsibilities that come with this. Mm -hmm. Uh, by the way, you might find some weird content online. You might see people without their clothes on doing certain things that you're not familiar with if you ever see anything like that you're not in any trouble just let me know and because he's had safe conversations before when he says you're not in trouble they actually believe him whereas if you're a parent and you've never had that conversation then you say you're not in trouble the kid's not gonna they're not really gonna be positive if you really mean that so you start early and often you try to lay a foundation um, and then you do everything you can to just keep having safe transparent conversations with your kids about it
1: you're in the midst of this addiction. Uh, do, do you seek help for this? What is like the next step for you or somebody going through it?
2: Yeah. So I, in, in classic, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's Christian fashion, male fashion, Indian fashion. I thought I can do this on my own. Mm-hmm. That was that was the response. Human fashion. Also, <laughs> human fashion. Yeah, that would be fair <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately the the price that I would have had to pay to come out and talk to somebody about it just felt way too costly. So I, you know, I actually did open up to one friend about it. And I'm really glad I did that because I don't think I'd be here today if I hadn't done that. And mm. he basically, like to my shock, because I thought I was the only one, he was like, yeah, I struggle with it too. That was really helpful. Um I started installing internet filters and reading up a l- little bit about it. Definitely like fell into the trap of thinking like maybe if I pray more, God will take it away from me. I'm trying everything that's not working. I'm also taking steps actively towards becoming a pastor and pursuing ministry. I was starting to feel the pressure a little bit of like, I know this is a bad combination and I really don't wanna go into ministry having this, so I need to do something. And then I went, wound- I wound up in ministry school and this school in particular had a really strong emphasis on like being a healthy person, like well-rounded, like healthy heart, working through traumas, um, really understanding biblical forgiveness, healthy interpersonal relationship skills. And in the process going through that school, I experienced a lot of healing, a lot of breakthrough and really start to notice a shift in that area of my life. So that was like, I think three years in before I really could say, oh, now I start, I sort of understand what's actually gonna be required for me to go all the way.
1: What's funny and ironic is that if you have a bunch of non-Christian friends to talk about porn or an addiction to porn or whatever is normal. But yet when you have, when you're a Christian you feel more judged by your Christian friends that you
2: have that conversation. It's a little bit strange. It's one of of my mandates, one of the things I think God's put on my life, which is just to create places for people to have these conversations. Like I was telling you guys, I was in Holland and, um, or I was in Europe, but I I had an event in Holland. And I mean, people literally packed into this place on a Wednesday night, not because of me, uh, not because like, you know, there's anything flashy about what we do. They just have never heard anybody talk so openly about this kind of stuff. And I think um, it's something that the church probably needs to improve on is, sure, we're probably not going to talk about this stuff perfectly. We just need to talk about it so that what you're saying, Johnny, becomes true where people are like, yeah, I'm struggling and I know I have somewhere I can reach out where I can actually safely broach the subject.
0: Uh, We're in a day and age where there's a lot of individuals being held accountable for, you know, not adhering to... (laughs) decency when it comes to sexuality. And, uh, a very, uh, very I just,
2: diplomatic way of putting it. Thank you. Thank you. Be- thank <laughs> you. <laughs> that was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: so it seems to be a chronic situation, um, yeah. in at least North America and maybe around the world with churches being maybe not as versed in how to be, um, how to have those safe and healthy conversations about sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if the suppression or dare I say, purity culture, created it into something that it shouldn't have been. Do you think that purity culture or just the like, how do you feel that that played into your own addiction?
2: Man, it's a really good question. I think a lot of people are like, kind of like, um, you know, there are a lot of people are rising up and speaking against purity culture. We'll just put it that way. Yeah, I I don't think I'm quite on that end of the spectrum. Because I think the the actual tenets that underpin purity culture are really healthy. It's like, Understanding the value of sex in the context of marriage. Really, really good. Um, Learning to make healthy decisions that actually impact you and they impact God. Like, really healthy. I think what's happened is we've basically made purity uh, this thing of, like, don't have sex before marriage. Don't watch porn. And, you know, as long as you wait, the wedding night will be awesome. And everything else should just be daisies and roses after that. And then, like, I have a, a handful of friends who... Who more or less subscribed to that kind of thinking did things, you know, as best as they could until they got married and then really struggled with their sex life in marriage or just struggled in marriage in general and were like, this was not what was promised to me. Mm. And so I, I do think we need to make some changes for sure because purity culture has created these kinds of stories and really unhealthy views around sex. There's actually some work from a woman named Sheila Ray Gregoire. And, um, in her work, she basically observed that. Christian women a majority of Christian women I forget the percentages but they are they are just as likely to have the response physically of somebody who was abused as a little uh, this is for women specifically as a little woman uh, as a young girl sorry because the, because the pressure that people put on sex in the church is so high that you know women feel like they can't say no they they don't like have any priority for their own pleasure in the experience because they just feel like this is what you do and so there's there's very Toxic parts of purity culture that obviously I'm I'm against, but um, but I think the 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 way it started was actually really good, and that's what I would like to see the church return to.
0: Yeah, I'm a huge fan of of fall because <laughs> I can finally wear sweaters without trying to figure out what do I wear in the summer. Are these uh, straps feel... too thin? Are these shorts too short? <laughs> yeah, I feel fall the same way. fall, I don't have to worry about it.
1: <laughs> no. I'm not wearing spaghetti straps in the winter time. <laughs> <laughs> just
0: makes getting dressed so much easier. Sweater, perfect.
1: You said no to drinking. You said no to swearing. You tried to say no to to porn. Uh, yeah. you, you're going through this whole recovery process of it. Is is there a relapse? Does somebody then? Do you just you you cut because you can't cut the internet off cold turkey? Yeah. And yeah. there, are, you know, pop ups and other things happen all the time. Were you worried about you know having a relapse or falling back into old habits?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, it's. I think it's a little bit inevitable. Like, I think people sometimes are unrealistic. They, they are like, yeah, I want to get free of porn. You know, they come to our program. Yeah, like let's do this. I'm ready. You know, I've I've never been more motivated in my life, which usually means they got caught or you know something worse. Mm-hmm. And then um, we're like, okay, that's great. And and then I think they just think because they made the decision, it's never going to happen. It's like, bro, you've been doing this regularly for two decades that mm-hmm. does not just turn off overnight. So what we tell people is relapse could be a part of recovery, but you can actually learn from them, you can grow from them, and then you can move on with your life. And that was certainly the case for me. Um, the most notable was basically I'd started pastoring. I had been free of porn for about, I don't know, probably maybe a year or so, and, um, and then had a really bad relapse. And um, it was super frustrating, you know, because I, I just, I thought I had reached a place where it was done. And then caught myself after a binge and was just like, this is this is terrible. This is awful. And was falling back into old habits. And that was um, that wound up being the turning point. It was sort of the last, I think, two or three months where I really struggled with it. But I, I had some of the biggest discoveries about what was really causing the issue in the first place, uh, was able to get some some professional help working through it and then having looked back in the last six and a half years, but tons of relapses along the way before I got to that point
0: so you are um doing well in this journey of recovery and there's a point where you're like i want to help other people let's talk a little bit about uh, your ministry what is it called and why did you feel compelled to start it
2: so one of my mentors um i was having a conversation with him when i was when i was struggling actually and Kind of complained about having this issue and i told him i said something effective i can't wait till i'm married one day so i don't have to deal with this a lot of people think this right (laughs) like you'll start having sex and then you know you you shouldn't have to worry about that anymore he almost reached across the table and slapped me in the face like that is not how it works he's like marriage is a magnifier and um if this is a problem now it's a bigger problem later so Mm. um i really took that to heart it was one of the big motivating factors to get free but the second was that i started to realize i'm not the only one and other people need help and so my prayer was always God, um, like, I, I will get free so that one day I can do everything in my power to help other people get free as well. And I was really frustrated by what the church was offering or lack thereof. And so, um, you know, I had my last relapse, February 2016, and it was December 2018. It had been long enough where I kind of felt like, okay, I, ha- I have actually like found a healthy place. And I felt that release in my heart from from God to, to start doing this and to start helping people. So um that's coming up on four years ago and so it was very humble beginnings it still feels like humble beginnings we're still pretty early on but um but yeah i that it, the seeds were planted when i was struggling and now i'm just on a mission to try to change the conversation a little bit around this uh really trying to get people to just um to just understand what it looks like to actually be a healthy and a holy christian and stop emphasizing just doing the right things and instead focus on getting their hearts healthy and letting the behaviors fall into place afterwards and um, and yeah, that's what we do. So we have we have a coaching program. Uh, we have a daily podcast. I just launched a book called The Last Relapse. Um, and so we, we, we do charge quite a bit for our programs, but then we give away tons of free resources. The book's available for free. The podcast is free, obviously, and really try to equip people that way as well. How long is the program? It takes about 16 weeks to do generally, and then there's options to continue it beyond that. Um, but typically in, what happens in 16 weeks is somebody has... Crystal clarity on what their root issues really were, what's been causing it. They have tools in their hands to deal with it and they have a community that's been able to support them along the way. Um, and then most of our clients stick around longer. You know, they want to continue it beyond that. Um, and so there's ways for them to do that.
0: I love how you talk about getting to the root because yeah. our addictions are often, if not always based on something else. And, yeah. uh, and then how important community is. And I think in this day and age, we've lost that a lot. Maybe the pandemic's helped reignite that need for community, Um, maybe there's some silver linings out of that, but why specifically focus in on those two areas with your program?
2: Yeah, so I think the first is, um, most of this conversation gravitates towards the behavioral components, like we said, don't have sex before marriage and don't watch porn. Mm -hmm. But behaviors are just, uh, bad behaviors are weeds growing in a garden. And if all you do is run over that weed with a lawnmower, like slapping on an internet filter to not watch porn, or just removing all the bad food from your house so that you'll know you eat healthier, as long as the roots are there, sure, you can run over it and it's gonna look clean for a little bit. It's only a matter of time before it grows back. So you have to get to the root issues. This is why a lot of guys go like three weeks or a few months and they feel like they have everything under control, but they really just put it at bay. So resolving the root issues is a must if you wanna experience any kind of lasting freedom. The community part has become really important uh what a lot of the research is showing is that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety it's connection mm. and so being able to foster meaningful places for you to experience connection with loved ones with your significant others with friends uh, being in a community with other guys who are struggling but also working towards freedom these are all really valuable touch points that do something to the human heart that a, you know, psychotherapy modality couldn't do or a textbook or anything else. Connection is just unbelievably valuable. So those two things, that's why they're both so important.
0: All right, well, this is the Why Me Project podcast. So I, I need to ask, I have to know, what is a Why Me moment that you have experienced?
2: Okay, so I i mean, I have had several, you can imagine being public about an issue like this. You know, right? Tons <laughs> of times where you're like, God, what the heck? Um, You know, like one of the first interviews I ever did was on national television. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah anyway but the story i wanted to share is actually uh very different so i was i was dating my wife and we had been together for about um i'm gonna say probably about seven or eight months and i had gone to know her family a little bit not super well and this was around the time when god was starting to kind of Birth this idea, uh, for a ministry in me. And so the church, I had said, Hey, uh, we need somebody to preach Friday night. Would you like to do it? I said, yeah, sure. No problem. And I had this great message about hearing God's voice and connection with him. And while I was rep- preparing, he was like, no, no, no. Um, like we have some other things we need to talk about. And I, I really felt like he wanted me to talk about my struggle with pornography and, um, And, you know, at least just get comfortable opening up about the subject more publicly. So anyways, I'm getting ready for it and, you know, feeling the nerves, feeling the jitters a little bit. First time kind of going publicly about it. And a a bunch of my friends texted me and they're like, hey, man, we're so excited you're preaching tonight. We're actually driving in. You know, they live like in other cities like we're driving in. we can't wait. And I'm like, all right, awesome. and then my wife has never seen me preach before, or maybe like once or twice. So she, she was like, Hey, I'm like, I'm so excited. Um, by the way, I hope you don't mind. I told my parents they're planning to come tonight. And I was like, why me? <laughs> like, oh no. Um, so I had to just like get through hurdle after hurdle mentally, um, uh, to share and open up about it. But you know, the, the thing is like, this is where you really get to test whether or not you trust. What God has spoken to Mm. you. Cause I, I knew, like, I knew that he wanted me to share this message. Um, and for me, I just had to say, well, uh, this is what it is. I'll deal with the ramifications afterwards. And, you know, her family was super gracious. Uh, they had no qualms about it or anything like that. But obviously there's just some shock value when you start sharing about that stuff. And that was, that was one of those moments where I'm like, man, of all the things God could have called me into, uh, here we are sharing in front of my future in-laws about my 15 year addiction to porn.
1: You you kind of did answer my question though, because I was going to ask like the reaction from, I mean, not just your family, but uh, your now wife or her family, because everybody knows. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I really fear judgment. Like, this actually really ties nicely into what we were talking about at the beginning. You're a pastor's kid. Always very conscious of what people think about you. It's just, I don't know, it's just ingrained into your memory. I mean, every everybody's like that probably by default to an extent. I think it's just a little bit more when you're a pastor's kid. So I definitely had that. But early on like i said i was on national television and i'm sharing in front of like friends and loved ones so you just kind of get forced to it where eventually you just realize it is what it is and people are going to think what people want to think and i'll just have to deal with the repercussions of that so now you know i'm super comfortable i really embrace it i feel super grateful that i get to do this but yeah it took took time to get here for sure
1: s-a-t-h-i-y-a sam.com, The Last Relapse, which is available now, brother. We appreciate you uh, taking some time and uh, also sharing your heart. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. It's always good to have these conversations, even if it's on things that are uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. And when someone can just address them as fact, like, mm. here's the thing, this is, a, it happens. And, and here's how we recover. Here's how we learn from it. It's A wonderful thing instead of trying to navigate these kind of addictions in secrecy.
1: But what's interesting, and and I even mentioned it, that your non-Christian friends, it's kind of a normal conversation, but there's judgment and it's a difficult conversation to have with your Christian friends.
0: But in recent events, I feel like now there are so many more resources and it's getting easier to, I think, be honest about where you are in those kind of
1: areas. Yeah. And and if you're going through something, uh, seek help, seek encouragement, uh, find somebody that you can talk to. And we've said this many times in different uh, areas and situations, Holly, you're not alone going through these things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's the lie. Don't believe it. And just ask for help.
1: Thank you for listening. As always, Uh, I heard this the other day and I'm going to use it. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell somebody that you don't even like. (laughs)
0: Yes, and you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms or go to faithstrongtoday.com.